Open your Bibles this morning, if you would, to John's Gospel, continuing our march through this glorious account of our Lord's revealing life, death, and resurrection. Find ourselves in verses 6 through 8 this morning as we look at the prophet who prepared the way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace yet again. Lord Jesus, even as we consider the one who you sent before you to prepare the way, may we ultimately see through John the Baptist and see you. May you, Lord Jesus, be lifted up as the hope of the prophets, the hope of Israel, the hope of the whole world. Lift yourself up, Lord Jesus, knowing that when you do, you will be faithful to your promises and that by you and only through you can all men come to the Father. We ask that you would draw this morning by lifting up yourselves. Lifting us through you by your righteousness to the Father. We pray in your precious name. Amen. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, read this way. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There are certain things in life that warrant a proper preparation. And without a proper preparation, do not find their mark and their target as they should. There are certain things in life that we must learn before we can go on and learn the thing that comes after. An elegant dinner with its many courses is preceded by things that are to prepare your palate to receive the main course. In relationships, we, we find that there is a building process to those friendships, to those relationships that eventually end in marriage. There are things that prepare us along the way. There are steps that are taken. Why is that? Why, why would God have designed life to, to function in such a way? It's because each step that we take before taking the final steps, illuminates what is to come. It prepares us to receive what is to come. One thing builds upon the next in true preparation. The prerequisites are lamps that illuminate and shine, focus upon the end goal. While they are necessary for us to be able to see, they are not the end and what ultimately matters, but without them we are ill-prepared to make it to the final destination. Many commentators, as does Scripture, refer to John the Baptist as that lamp. He is the one who has come to prepare us for the real light, the true light that was coming. He is simply a source of illuminating and casting clarity upon the subject of history the greatest subject of history, the Word made flesh. John has come for that purpose. And so if all of these other things in life, and no doubt you can think of many more, require that sort of preparation, 
when we stop to consider the most important person and the most important subject in all of human history, we shouldn't be surprised to find that God first needed to prepare for us to receive Him. To send a forerunner to illumine Christ and to tell us of Christ and prepare our hearts for Christ. And so this morning I simply want to look at several exposures that John the Baptist gives us about the coming of the Word in human flesh. Several exposures that reveal and illumine Jesus Christ and prepare the hearts of mankind to receive Him. Number one, I want you to notice it is a prophetic exposure. John the Baptist, while we may have any number of images of what John was like, stemming from flannel graph Sunday school lessons, for those of us old enough to remember that, to perhaps depictions in movies that have been made, and even the description of Scripture itself. But what we need to know about John the Baptist is this, apart from the other things. He came as the final Old Testament priest before, or a prophet, I'm sorry, before the coming of Jesus, and he was the first New Testament prophet who would be succeeded only by Jesus to fulfill a very critical role that God had ordained for him. John the Baptist was not the only prophet, but simply the culmination in a long line of human prophets whose sole task it was to prepare the people of the world for the coming of the Word. How wonderful is our Savior. So wonderful that it took millennia filled with prophets, men who would preach the Word of God, men who would call us to prepare for the Messiah. And John is simply the apex of that. He is the capstone of the era of the prophets who prepared us for Jesus. You can't just drop Jesus into the world with all of His majesty, with all of His saving promise, without adequately preparing the people to receive Him. And so God does that over generation after generation through these men of the prophets and John the apostle now writing of John the Baptist not the same guy but wants to give us one last look the man who would prepare the way for the word who would come in human flesh if you remember your bible history you'll know that just before the writing of the new testament or the beginning of the events of the New Testament, Israel had suffered through 400 years of divine silence. Silence where God was no longer revealing, where the prophets were silent, and where there was no fresh revelation encouraging Israel and spurring Israel to wait and to believe. Israel had closed out their time in the Old Testament under condemnation, under judgment because of their lack of faithfulness to Yahweh to their idolatry. They had suffered through captivity. (coughs) And Malachi, as he closes out the Old Testament, in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, says this, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Elijah had already lived prior to Malachi. 
And so Malachi is writing of another one who would come on the scene and be like an Elijah, be, be very close in spirit and in power to Elijah, but one who would come to do a work that no prophet before had been able to do, and that was to prepare the heart, to prepare the people to receive the Messiah Himself, the one who would restore all things back to their intended positions. And so as John the Apostle writes in the Gospel this morning, he writes of that man who came to make ready and till the ground, if you will, so that when the Messiah came, he would find fertile soil in which to plant the seed of the Gospel. It's a grand promise that is made in Malachi. It's a great promise of hope for the people of their day, and yet they endured 400 long years after that. After that promise had been given, they suffered silence. And if you want to know what divine judgment it is, it is when God no longer reveals Himself. When God is quiet. Some of you remember what that's like as a child when you were in trouble and your parents were silent. That was never good news. You know, your mom says something like, just wait until your dad gets home. And that's the longest day of your life. And it's quiet in the house. And you're contemplating what you know is coming. So it is with God when He removes Himself, when He takes His hand off of a people and turns them over to their own devices where He no longer is speaking. The day prior to John the Baptist coming on the scene was that day. Deafening, terrifying, quiet. As God no longer spoke. The understanding of Old Testament prophecy was prevalent in the reader of John's Gospel. They were Jews. They understood. They knew what the Old Testament had said. And they understood John to be of the same calling and the same likeness and the same type as Elijah, as is evidenced by their question, is the Word of God true? In John one twenty one, just preempting ourselves by a few weeks here, they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? You see, they know. They know their Bibles. They, they knew what to look for. And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Meaning, are you the Messiah? The final prophet? In which he answers, no. And yet he plays an important role. John doesn't make much of himself. He simply wants to point people to the Word who is coming. And he lives quite a remarkable life. We, we know that, that he is... Uh, an interesting character, and where he did walk in this morning, he would be the focus of all of our muse, clothed in camel hair, the belt of leather, eating locusts and honey. He, he, was, he was an interesting man, and he garnered attention. But the attention he seeks to garner beyond his mantra is that of the one who came to prepare the way. Isaiah, all the way back to the prophet Isaiah, looked forward as well to John the Baptist. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 3, Isaiah writes this, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her welfare has, or her warfare, I'm sorry, has ended. Her iniquity has been removed. 
that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And so John the Baptist is anticipated even here. And so he's a prophet who comes in a long tradition and in a long line and with great expectation. He can't, carries upon him as a prophet the mantle of authority like the prophets before him, whose favorite phrase was, Thus saith the Lord. John the Baptist comes in that power, that legacy. Thus says the Lord. John records uh, that he was sent from God here in the text this morning. Look at verse 6. There came a man, John the Baptist, sent from God, a direct commission. It's written in the perfect tense, which indicates it is a fixed reality. It could never change. John couldn't be anything other than what he was because that is what God had created him to be. And we see the divine sovereignty and authority present in John's life. It could not be anything other than what it was. The word sent is the word from which we get our word apostle, one who is sent, one who is commissioned, one who carries not their own message, but the message of the one who sent them. Think of an ambassador or an emissary of a king. They don't draft up their own speeches and their own policies. No, they come and they say only what they have been commissioned to say. And that was John the Baptist. He came with all the authority of God, bearing God's message. His power and importance are not found in himself, even though he was undoubtedly a very powerful man in his persona and in his messages. But John the Baptist understands this, that the power that he had in ministry was not his own, but came from the one who sent him. Brothers and sisters, no man has power in and of himself. We are all beggars. We are all sinners. We are all weak. Our strength comes only through what we are commissioned to do by the Lord Himself. Called to do. There is power and authority in that. And so, John comes, John the Baptist comes with this prophetic exposure, exposing the world to the final human prophet, if you will. Fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Preparing the way for the final prophet, the the prophet of all prophets, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice, secondly, there's a preserving exposure. There's a preserving element to what John the Baptist will do when he comes. I want you to go with me back one book to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1. We find the story of John the Baptist in Luke's accounting, beginning much earlier than just showing up on the scene as the prophet. We're coming into the Christmas season now, so it seems appropriate that we would read this text because it goes hand in hand with the announcement of the birth of Jesus. But we read this in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, and in the following verses. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias, one of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Get the picture. John comes from a long line of priestly service both on his father's side and his mother's side, John has the lineage of a priest. 
And yet, God will not call him to be a priest. God will call him to be a prophet. He, he is breaking with all tradition, not only in his vocation, but also his name, because he, he doesn't take his father's name. He doesn't take the priestly names before him. He takes upon him, God gives him a different name. God's doing something different in John. Verse 6, Luke 1. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. That sounds familiar. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division... According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. Yes, especially when we realize who the angel was. This is no ordinary angel. Zacharias, uh, to, to Zacharias, the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. You see, he's already fulfilling what the Old Testament closes with. That there would come one like Elijah who would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers and all of the nation back to the Lord God. He will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, see, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John has a preserving ministry that he has been called to even before he is conceived. God has John the Baptist in his plans. You see, he tells Zacharias, he doesn't say Elizabeth is expecting, he says she will become expecting. John's not even yet in the womb, and yet God has a, a clearly marked out path for this man to come and to bear as salt and light to bear witness to the nation of Israel so that they would in turn be saved. He is a forerunner of good news. This is the news for which Israel had been waiting. This is the, the man for whom Israel had been waiting. Good news so good, so powerful, so transforming that God has to send someone to prepare them to receive it. That's good news. <laughs> When you've got to have good news to present, uh, to preempt good news, that's, that's really good news that's coming. There's power in what is coming. And so God sends John the Baptist as a preserving influence to expose Israel to what is headed their way. Not only does this emphasize the Baptist's important role, but it emphasizes just how powerful the words coming and the salvation that would come through him were to be. 
Again, verse 6 refers to John the Baptist as the one sent from God. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 refers to him as the witness to God. So he is sent from God to bear witness back to God. Notice what it says. He came as a witness to testify about the light or toward the light, pointing people to him. In other words, in, in defining the word, it means to bear confirmation or attestation on the basis of personal knowledge or belief. So wait a minute, John comes and John is going to do these things and John was born for the purpose of it, and yet John hasn't seen the ministry of Jesus fully developed yet. How can John know the Word? How can John bring forth this type of ministry? How can he actually know for sure that this is the Messiah? And how can he know for sure that the Messiah would affect salvation for his people? I'll tell you how he knows. Go back to Luke chapter 1. So miraculous is not only the coming of the Word, but the preparation for the Word. So concerned is God with this. Notice what happens. Verse 39. Elizabeth has now conceived. Mary has now conceived. They are cousins. And now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Even in the womb, John the Baptist understands something. There is a miraculous interaction between John and being aware even in the womb that he is in the presence of the Word made flesh, that he leaps in his mother's womb. I will say that is unusual. Some of you moms might look at this and say, yeah, but you've never carried a baby. They move all the time. This is different. He hears and he leaps for joy. And in that moment, his own mother is filled with the Holy Spirit. Spirit. God is doing something. There's something unique about John. Because of John? No, because of the one whom John came to call us to look at, to bear witness to. It is a living faith within the Baptist that causes him to bear witness of the one who called him. The purpose is so clear. Look at the text. Verse 7. He came as a witness to testify. To, to the, the, the word is... Uh, martyrios, from which we get our English word martyr, to bear a witness to something in the most sincere and serious way. Why does John do this? So that all might believe through him. So that all would believe on the one whom John would tell us about, the one whom he knew from the very presence in the womb. The one that caused him to leap for joy, being in the presence of Messiah, both pre-born. They leap. There's a great movement of God in that moment. Why? Because what is happening is, is God sending the one to call people to salvation through Christ. In the coming of the Word, God's grace is going to be shown to mankind in a way that it has never been shown up to this point in history. 
His grace is going to be poured out for the saving of mankind. And John is the one who gets to personally bear witness to that and prepare the world with one final course before the main event. John is a special man that gets to proclaim that. A a blessed man, a very unique man. And so when we speak of a prophet, particularly John the Baptist, our minds are, again, drawn to his persona, but while his persona may communicate something of coarseness in reality, he's a treasure of grace. Isn't it funny how God uses that? The outward appearance communicates one thing, but what he's communicating is actually something we don't naturally put together in our minds. But nevertheless, that's the way God designed it. It's a treasure of grace, especially here as John preaches. His very name is a Hebrew transliteration that means God's favor or God's grace. John has come to testify to that grace. In fact, in verse 16 of John chapter 1, the Apostle John writes this, For of His fullness we have all received, and what? Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, that prophetic utterance, that condemnation of sin. But grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist is sent to preserve the souls of men and women as he points them forward to the one who is grace upon grace. Grace that informs us, grace that prepares us, grace that comes near to us, and grace that saves us. John's coming is part of all of that. John the Baptist's ministry, however, is, is also a line in the sand. The, the, the one epoch of history is over, and now a new one has begun. And there will be, as there always has been, a very clear indication that salvation will only come through Christ alone. But there will be no confusion anymore. There will be no excuses anymore. The line in the sand is here, and John has drawn it. You must now see the light. There's no excuse for confusion. And you must see the light in order to believe. Look to Jesus, John the Baptist will say. And knowing the truth, you must believe the truth. You must believe the truth. It is not optional. We must believe on Him. John the Baptist, I think if we were to sit him down in heaven someday and interview him and ask him what his goals were in his life and ministry, and it would simply be this, for everyone who heard him to see Christ in such a way that he would be drawn to believe. That that I have been so persuasive and so accurate and so authoritative that everyone who heard my ministry would have believed. We know they didn't. But we know that's what John would have wanted. After all, they, He came so that all who heard Him might come to faith through the One who John the Baptist testified about. John gives us a clear revelation and a clear preparation for Jesus to come. I want you to notice lastly this morning, there's a precise exposure. There's a prophetic exposure. There's a preserving exposure that we might be saved, but then it is a very precise exposure as well. 
in the coming of John the Baptist, there is a very serious warning that must be heeded. It isn't just serious because of what happens if we don't. But it's serious because of the potential that it bears for all of us. Once you look at verse 8, He was not the light, but He came to testify about the light. There's a potential for all of us, brothers and sisters, to become distracted. To look to someone else other than Jesus. And John the Baptist came and he, he garnered such a following because of his personality, because of his appearance, because of the message that he preached. Many did follow John. And John had a unique problem in his ministry, and that was that so many people began looking to him that he, he almost formed his own quasi-religion, or could have, and some people actually did around him. When in reality, all the Baptist wanted was to point people to Jesus. The Word made flesh. And the warning here in verse 8 to us is clear. There, it must be a precise Exposure to Jesus, that we don't become distracted from Christ, not even by godly and powerful preachers. We shouldn't look to any man, and it's scary how close this reality hits home, how easily we can become followers of Paul, or followers of Apollos, or followers of John the Baptist, or followers of fill in your favorite preacher or podcaster. When John the Baptist would say, you follow one man and he is the Word. You don't follow me. You follow him. Any preacher worth his salt will always point people to Christ. And if he's not pointing people to Christ, then he doesn't need to be a preacher. He needs to be a politician. The scary reality is that we all fall into this man worship so easily. And John the Apostle, as he writes, he says, listen, he's not the light. Quit looking. Some of you quit looking at the Apostle John. I mean, not the Apostle John, the prophet John the Baptist. Listen, you can appreciate men who help you. You can appreciate prophets and priests and pastors. But under no circumstance can we elevate them to a place where they eclipse even for a single moment the majesty and power of the saving person of Jesus Christ. You are doomed at that point. Men may speak words, but by their words they must always lead you to the Word. And even though their words are eloquent, don't be distracted. That is not the point. They are simply there to lead you to the Word. As John the Baptist was, we know that this is not a problem unique to our day and age. We might be tempted to think that with the proliferation of media and books and things are so easy to obtain nowadays. But apparently in the New Testament, it's an issue as well. We read in Acts chapter 18, don't we, of a man named Apollos, verse 24, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he is as sincere as the day is long. He's a good man. He's fervent in spirit. He's speaking and he's teaching accurately things about Jesus. 
But he's only acquainted with the baptism of John. He can only go so far as what he's heard from John. He's teaching the Scriptures through the lens of John. And so what happens? Priscilla and Aquila have to come in and take him aside and say, Apollos, dear brother, you're so gifted. and You're so right about so much. But you might not be going far enough. You might be stopping too soon. Go past John. Look to Jesus. And they... Acts goes on, Luke goes on to tell us in Acts that they more fully informed him in the way of Christ. And caused him then to to direct his focus and his attention, not just to what John had taught, not just in what the ministry of John had affected him, but in the way of Christ. Gordon Ketty says this, it's easy to follow the wrong man, even if he's on the right track. Let that be a, a lesson to all of us. It is easy to follow the wrong man even if he's on the right track. Follow Christ. Follow Christ. That's John the Baptist's life. It's his ministry. It's the sum of who he is and what he has been called to do. It's the purpose for which he was created. According to Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist had no interest in garnering his own following, but he wanted others to see Jesus. And isn't that what all faithful servants of the Word do? Isn't that what any faithful servant of the Lord Christ does? Hey, dads in our homes, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. Point your wife, point your children to Jesus. Show them who Christ is. Show them the glories of Christ. In our workplace, don't make it about you. Don't, don't make yourself out to be super Christian. Well, hey, everybody look at me. Get everything you know from me. No, point them to Christ. In our Sunday schools, in our ministry here in the church, it's not about us. This isn't our church. It's not our message. It's Christ. And we are here for one brief season in the scope of eternity to do what John the Baptist did. To point people to the light. That is the true light that coming into the world enlightens every man according to verse 9. To peel back the curtains. To uneclipse the sun. To remove everything that could possibly be laid in someone's way that would obstruct them from seeing the Son in all of His glory. That's what we do. We're spiritual bulldozers. We've come in to clear the way. Just as John did. You think about the people in John's day, all that was in their way. (laughs) A lot. Lack of knowledge. By the time John the Baptist is on the scenes, a, a rank variety of Judaism that was nothing that Moses would have ever recognized. 700 and some odd rules added to the law of God that Moses had given. This is certainly not inspired Scripture that they are living by at this point. This is a terrible time to be alive if you're a Jewish person. A terrible time as so much has been heaped upon them in the avenues of legalism and works and the cumbersome nature of the law it was a terrible time and john comes and he's 
parsing that out. He's pushing that aside. He's clearing the way so that for these people, they could clearly see Jesus. Let's ask ourselves the question, what in our life needs to be pushed out of the way so that there is an unobscured view of the Son? What in our personal life is keeping us from seeing and believing and savoring the Lord Jesus Christ? We're not John the Baptist. There will never be another John the Baptist. But the call ought to be the same. To prepare ourselves and to remove obstacles and be precise in our living and in our communication so that everyone sees Christ as He is. Are we that kind of witness? Do we understand that ourselves? It's an important part of the Gospel to prepare the way. How do we do that? We do that by doing what John did, staying faithful to the Scriptures. By, by speaking only truth as it comes from God's Word. Not what a man thinks. Not what a man says. We do it in prayer. You know, I think that's probably the greatest lack in our evangelism. It's not that we don't have enough programs to train us how to evangelize. It's not that we don't have enough material to hand people to help them understand the Christian faith. I think it's prayer. If God is the only one who can change the human heart, then we need to be praying that God will change the human heart. And spend more time praying before we go to prepare the way in prayer so that as we go, we find fertile ground into which to drop the seed and let God do what only God can do, and that is the saving of sinners. Is our message so clear from Scripture? Is our life so inflamed with the power and passion of prayer that we carry on this great ministry to make Christ known like John the Baptist did? Is our own life so Christ-focused that we can do no other than for when people look at us or talk to us, they see Him? Are we that Christ-centered? We need to be. It's the only way that men and women, boys and girls, will come to faith in Christ is when we live as unto Christ, as John the Baptist did. Stripping self away, stripping other obstacles away, not complicating or adding to the message of the Word made flesh. By God's grace, He gave us John the Baptist. By God's grace, He can make us heralds in our own day. To point back to Christ, just as John the Baptist did. Let's bow in prayer this morning. Father, we are so grateful for the record of Scripture. We're grateful that as we see prophecy fulfilled even in John the Baptist's life, that you did send another one like Elijah. You, you sent him, and we know we can trust your word that it's true and it's without fail. So we thank You for that, Father. And we ask that based on the testimony of John and the coming of the Word that has saved our souls to those who believe, we ask that You would cause us to rise up in the example of John, not claiming prophetic status, but following the example of pointing others to Messiah, to the Word, to the Lord Jesus. 
may begin in our own lives as we see where we are not precise, where we lack a real leaning on faith alone in Christ alone. May you strip other things from us so that we see only Christ. May we be faithful in our homes as fathers and mothers. May we be faithful in our spheres of influence in school, at work, and at leisure to point others to Jesus, the only hope of this lost and dying world. And so, Lord Jesus, make much of Yourself in us that we might make much of You to others. We pray that You would save those whom You are calling all around us. Use us as instruments just as you did with John. We pray this not for our own sake, not for the sake of an institution, but for the glory of the name of Jesus so that more worshipers might be added to that heavenly choir that will sing for all eternity. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. We pray this in His glorious, majestic, and conquering name. Amen.